If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the third chapter of Romans. In these last uh, messages, we've been looking at the heart of the gospel, the middle of the highest of the mountains in the Bible, where God is proclaiming that he has met our greatest need in Jesus Christ, that though we are his enemies and completely powerless to do anything at all, that not one of us want him, not one of us seek him, and all of us deserve our, uh, our misery, he has reached out to us that he is the Savior and that he saves us through Christ. And we see that he saves us through Christ's blood and that he saves us through Christ's blood, which we hold on to by faith. And that's what we'll be looking at today. So we're reading from verse 21 in chapter 3 of Romans down to and through verse 26. This is God's word. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So last week we looked at the very final, uh, we thought was the final, this is the final, I suppose, uh, of the sermons on verse 25. I have never preached five sermons on one verse before. And this is the second verse on the word faith in one prepositional phrase at the end of that sentence. And we're talking about the fact that God did something. God met the need of all people, and he met it through Jesus, and it was his bloody death. And that we somehow have something to do with that through belief. And that's what we're going to look at. So I wanted to take several passages in the New Testament that I can think of that were simply pictures of what it means to believe. What does it mean to have faith in his blood? Because that is what means it is only to those who believe that you are justified before God. It's only, going back, it's only those who believe that have the righteousness by faith of Christ. It's only the ones that believe that are redeemed in Christ Jesus. It's the ones that believe that have a propitiation where God's wrath is turned away. It's only the ones who who believe that are justified. And all of this has been fully uh, supported by the scriptures. It's only the number one and only message of the Bible that we're to look to God to be saved that we're not in any way trying to save ourselves, that we do not do something ourselves in order for God to do something back because we're, we are broken. We're, we will not do it. If God were to ask anybody who wants it to have it, no one would want it. That, that is his indictment of the world, not mine. So if I were looking at pictures in the New Testament, phrases 
that easily show what does it mean to trust the blood of Christ. What does it mean to have faith in the blood of Christ? I went to two or three places as I was writing sheafs of notes. My first set of notes was based upon Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6, this is what I read. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So I thought, that's faith. Faith is knowing that you don't have something. Faith is recognizing that I'm missing something that I absolutely need. If I know that I haven't eaten, my belly tells me that I haven't eaten. My mind tells me that I've eaten. I'm going around in circles until I can eat. I start getting faint. I have to sit down because I am lacking something that I need. And so this is a picture of faith. God makes you hungry for him. He makes you thirsty for him. He clobbers you. I don't know about your, your experience when you were saved, but if it's anything like mine, he brought me up and then crashed me to the ground, and then I trusted him. Lord, I pray for this situation right now. I pray for the fire or for the situation that would call this out. I ask that you would have mercy on these people and meet their needs. In Jesus' name, amen. I then looked away to a beautiful verse in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And one day I want to do justice here. This, this is just a thought. But the verse says, talking about us, to whom coming as to a living stone, coming to Jesus, as though Jesus were a stone, okay, and we come to him, disallowed of men, thrown into the heap, thrown into the, into the trash where men looked and said, no, you can't build a building out of this, and threw it into the refuge pile, into the gob pile, into the pile that would be covered over later by somebody's lawn. And disallowed by men, but chosen of God and precious. So to come to Jesus where God says he's precious, and all men said he's garbage, for some of us to come to him, It says, you also, those who come to him, are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And I thought, yeah, that's faith. Faith is nothing more than leaning all of your weight, like one course of stones, leaning it on the other course of stones. You're showing faith by just sitting in that pew. You came in and you just sat down and it held your weight. That is faith. Faith is putting into practice those things that you recognize as true. So if I am with all of my weight realize it is Jesus' righteousness that I'm sitting on. My hope is built on nothing less. I just lay all my weight there. That's faith. That's what faith is. Faith is not me doing something. Faith is not me generating something. Faith is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What I decided to do is go to a passage where Jesus talks about faith. What does faith mean from the lips of our Lord? And what is faith and what is not faith? And how do you acquire faith? Because if you are to be propitiated, if God, who is wrathful against you, if you are an unconverted sinner... The whole wrath of a holy God is on you. 
And you may know it, you may not know it. You may, you may feel the weight. You may know that you're not right with God. You may, you may know that you're like a stone that you skip on the lake, and as long as it's going 100 miles an hour, you can keep up above the water, but as soon as it slows down, it's going to sink. If you know that's true, if you recognize that, how is it that I can have faith in his blood? How is it that I can be the redeemed of the Lord too? Because Jesus receives high honor by saving us. Please remember that. God is exalting his son by making him the savior. If he were only the righteous judge and would send us all to our our complete deserts, he would not be as high as if he were Christ Jesus, the savior who died for men and then rescued filthy men and made them clean in his sight. That is high honor to to Jesus Christ. He will be glorified when we go into glory. And so sometimes when you recognize that you are not right, that you are not clean, that you cannot make it. I was reading in my Bible reading yesterday, I read the end of Joshua. And Joshua said, serve, choose this day who you will serve. And the people answered, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua, as an old man, 110 and about to die, said, Oh, you can't serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord. Because after he was good to you, he'll destroy you all. You can't serve the Lord. And I just remember, as I was reading, I just sat there and I thought, How wonderful. Jesus Christ lived, accepted for me. Because if he were just to tell me, Here's my law, you be good and I'll take you to heaven and I will not take you to hell. And I would think, what a wonderful opportunity, what a wonderful God to let me have the opportunity to have something. But he's like Joshua. He's like, oh, you can't serve the Lord. You must have a Savior. You look to me, and I'll save you. That has always been what in this Bible has been the gospel. So he meets up with a man late at night in John chapter 3. We turn to John chapter 3. We're introduced to probably, according to the Talmud, remember the Talmud is a Jewish book, ancient, ancient Jewish book. It's not the Bible. But according to the Talmud, Nicodemus was the third richest man in the country. He was the teacher, the prominent teacher. Jesus said, you are the teacher of Israel and you know not these things. You are number one, supreme. Nobody was above him. He was a member of the Supreme Court He was one of the highest leaders. He was the leader who made the rules and enforced the rules. He was wealthy, he was respected, and he was terrified because he knew he was a hypocrite. He knew it. He knew that the God that he claimed to know everything about, the God that he was able to teach other people, and the people were wondering how wonderful, what a wonderful teacher is, he knew that when he was quiet alone with God, he had no peace. He knew that the wrath of God was on his heart. He knew that on his last heartbeat he would go into eternity in in wrath and pain. He knew it, and he was frightened, and he didn't know what to do. And there was nobody above him for him to go to. There was nobody for him to seek counsel from because he was number one. And here was Jesus, an itinerant rabbi with filthy clothes that walked everywhere he went, and everywhere he went, he healed people. He tore people away from their demons. 
He brought back dead to life, and everybody in the whole place knew it. It was talked about all the way to the top. There was nobody that didn't know it. God said at the beginning, I didn't do this in a corner. Everybody knows me. All of you from the ends of the earth, we just read, from the one side of heaven to the other side of heaven, all know to look to me. So Nicodemus, quietly, in the middle of the night, sneaks to Jesus. And for years, I thought that he was being snarky. Oh, we know you are from God. Okay, because you'll see all of these other Pharisees say that. Very, very kind of saying nice things, but really meaning evil. But I'm now convinced, no, this guy was desperate. He was absolutely desperate. If anybody would be able to tell him how to be right with God, how do I get into the kingdom? How do I have faith? How do I, what do I need that I'm lacking? Because I know God has damned me. I know it, and it's just not done yet. I've just not been hauled to my punishment, but I know it's true. What can I do? And so he goes to Jesus, and he asks him. Now, at the beginning of the book, Jesus, just very, very normal and natural, says, well, here's the problem. You can't do anything. Nicodemus goes to him and he said, what must I do to enter the kingdom? What must I do to be accepted by God? And Jesus, as clear as a bell, says, oh, you can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. And that wrecks him. He's an apostate Jew that has taken the Jewish religion of the gospel and converted it and perverted it and changed it and morphed it into anybody that has power and you do these ceremonies and you do this and it's all right, it's all legalism, it's all, it's all human achievement. And he was the ringleader of this. And Jesus, just as clear as Bell said, oh no, it's just like being born. Did you have any choice about being born? Did you have anything to do with it at all? You were there. Does anybody attribute your birth to yourself? And he just stares at him. And he was like, uh, what? Let's, uh, let's read from verse 7. This is, this is John chapter 3. And we'll read from verse 7. Why don't we read from 7 through 10? Okay? Let's see. Let's see if I wrote it all down. Okay. Let's read from 7 to 10. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, Art thou the teacher? Art thou number one in Israel and knowest not these things? Do you see it? He's, he's basically just thunderstruck because everything according to him was what you did. You did something and God accepted you for it. You did something and then he did something and then you did something and he did something. And if you were smart or if you were rich or if you were powerful or if you were influential or if you were winsome, whatever it was, what you had your capacities, then you could be more influenceable and God would like you better and you did greater things and God would want you. It, it was that idea that you worked for something. I, I say every false religion in the world is like that. You name it. I don't care what it is. 
There's 75 Christian denominations just like that, where I do something, then God does something, then I do something, then God does something. And it's not just the formal ones. It's not just the ring the bell and kneel and stand up and you do this and then you do this and God, it's okay with God. No, there's everybody, you can have very casual people who somehow believe that God is, likes them better when they read their Bible in the morning or God, they're more likely not to get in a car wreck or something like that. It's superstition. That's all it is. Jesus says very clearly, look at, look at 11. Verily, verily, I say to you. Now, this is the third time he said this. You've heard Jesus say, verily, verily, I say to you before. This truly, truly, I say, ego, ego, I mean. Okay, truly, I say to you. But it's the idea of, I am saying something so important and you're missing it. So I'm wanting to draw some attention to what I'm saying. Please wake up, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, I think, is awake. He's going to show himself to be an unbeliever even further still. But he's now very, very listening. He said, we speak that which we do know and testify that which we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Jesus is saying something very strong. I never read this in a book. I never was taught this. I never was told this. I never came to know it or realize it. I am God, for you to look outside the story and look that that man, that very powerful, very wicked man, that unbelieving man was sitting there with the creator of all things, the holy, holy, holy God, powerful beyond anybody's imagination. The, the, the closest saint to God has no inkling of how great Jesus is. People who have been in heaven for thousands of years haven't the slightest clue of just how great their God is. It will be made known to them, but they couldn't handle it. And he's sitting there, and Jesus is saying, I am giving you firsthand information, and I'm giving you my testimony, things that I've always known to be true and things that have personal experience in Okay? And you have not believed our report. Now, interesting, the you in that sentence is plural. The you all have not believed our report. You personally, Nicodemus, you, you've not believed me. Your friends, the Pharisees, they've not believed me. The religious leaders of Israel, my people, have not believed me. You apostate, false shepherds, you hireling. You have not believed our report. I've told you who God is. I've told you what he expects, and I've told you how he saves men, and you have scoffed at it. Do you see? He's an unbeliever. He's sitting there as an unbeliever. Now, the Pharisees, I just want you to go really quick. Let's go to Matthew 23. Okay? Can you pull up Matthew 23, starting in verse 13? And we're just going to fly, okay? Because I'm going to use all of this like a sledgehammer. I'm not going to pause on anything. We're just going to go fast. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's had enough. Jesus says, starting in verse 13, Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men and neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entering in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Wherefore, you shall receive greater damnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twice the child of hell as you yourself. Woe to you, you blind guides. Go to 23. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and cumin and anise and have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you have done and not leave the others undone. 24. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. This is Jesus speaking. He's lambasting them. He's pulling his, their skin off of them. You swallow at a gnat and swallow a camel. That's hilarious. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You may clean the outside of the cup and platter, but inside they're full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is inside the cup, and then outside will be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are full of dead men's bones. Even so, you are outwardly full, appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. This is the person who's sitting there. God of heaven and earth is enduring him. Don't think that Jesus is, oh, somebody love me, somebody love me, somebody love me. This is God of heaven and earth. And the Pharisee came to him so that he wouldn't be seen. And Jesus condescended to have an interview with him. And it probably took all night. And he said, you have not believed our report. Nicodemus was an unbeliever. Look at verse 12. We're back in John 3. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how should you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I told you about birth, being born. That's as earth as you can get. Nobody's born in heaven. That only happens on earth. And I told you, it's like being born. You have no control over it. God has control whether or not you trust God or not. And that's astonishing to people. It makes people mad. No, I have, I have power. I have ability. And Jesus said, it's like being born. Did you choose to be born or not? And then he said, the wind blows where it wants, right? And you don't even know where it comes from or where it's going. You can't even see it. All you can see is the effects that have on the trees. The trees are bending over, and you're like, oh, the wind's blowing from this way to this way, because you can look and see it. That's like the Spirit. The Spirit does something to a man, and you can see a result. You can see a result when someone's life is different. You can see a result when, stop, when people are not filthy, where people are not beating each other and stealing from each other and robbing from each other and sneaking around, being filthy, and acting like they're good. There's a change that happens when the wind blows on you. By the way, the spirit and the word wind is the same. There's the same word in Greek, exactly the same. Spirit and wind is the same word. So there's a play. Jesus is letting it like play on his ear. This, the wind is coming, and the spirit does the very same thing to you. It's just like that. If I tell you earthly things... How are you wanting me to tell you important things? You want to sit here, Mr. Doctor of Israel, and have a theology discussion? I'm not going to talk to you about theology. You're a moron. You are dead. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, 
Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what PhD you have. I don't care what theology department of what Harvard, Yale, or Princeton you go to. You're, you're an idiot. You know nothing. Have you ever heard a non-believer say something about the Bible and you're just like, oh, brother, they don't know anything. The fourth graders know more than they do, and they do. A Christian fourth grader has more understanding of God himself than any of the fancy-pants, uh, leather-patched doctors somewhere that want to talk about religion. He said, I can't talk to you about theology. You're not capable. Now, this is the guy. This is the number one in God's people. The, the only people that know about God, the true God, the only person who knows everything about the scriptures, he thinks, but has gotten it all wrong. Everything is wrong. And Jesus said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It would be worthless. Now, Jesus is kind, but he's direct. Jesus never, ever wastes his time. Jesus never rushes to go anywhere. He's ne he goes at his pace, and he never wastes a moment. And in John 13, this is what he said. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Do you see? You want to talk philosophy? You want to talk theology? There's only one theology. I'm the only one that has ever come down from heaven and given you the truth. And there are scads of people. Go to the Christian bookstore. There's a whole shelf of people who went to heaven for 15 minutes or something like that. All, I mean, because, because it's fun. It's, it's exciting. It's, it's that idea that we can all just, like Oprah, all love God the way we want to. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I came from heaven. I'm the one that's telling the truth. Nobody else has ever done that. You have to realize that he's concentrating his focus of his faith on himself. He's saying, you want to know how to be right? You want to go to the kingdom? Now, just a minute. We know from Romans 3 that it's through faith in his blood. That's how you're admitted into the kingdom. A simple belief in the fact that Jesus is that course of stone that I'm on. It's that, that Jesus' blood is enough to satisfy an absolutely, flawlessly, holy, omnipotent God. That's how you please him, is to believe in his son. God is saying, look to me and I will save you. That's what he's saying. Look to my son. Now, Jesus, spokesman, of the Trinity in this conversation said, I descended from heaven and no one come, ascends to heaven except for me. Okay? Now, in John 30, 30, uh, 6, 38 and 39, this is what he says. He's talking to the Pharisees again. But I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is John 6. 39, and this is the Father's will which he has sent me, that all of that which he's given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, do you see it? Seeth the Son. Look upon me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Anybody who seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Hallelujah. That is what he said. That's the will of my father. The will of my father is that I will be your savior. 
Look to me. You want to enter the kingdom? Now, Nicodemus is absolutely just destroyed. Because if this is true, what's he going to do? He has to turn his back on everything. Everything. It's either I want to be accepted in the kingdom and I know I'm not. I must go there. But to do that, I have to give up all of this pretense, all of this power, all this esteem, all of this, all of this, all of this. By the way, we're going to see that they take Jesus' body down from the cross and they dress it all full of blood caked in the linen and Nicodemus and a rich man named Joe put Jesus in a new tomb. So here's Nicodemus. At the end of the story, one of the disciples, the rich disciples, the powerful disciples, the disciples, and I don't know what he lost. I don't know what he lost to do that. But we see the most comforting thing. It's like, oh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus took his body and wrapped it in cloth and put it in the tomb. So this discussion, this late at night, is shaking him to the core because it's telling him exactly the opposite of what he's always thought. And what he's thought is that I can do it myself. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. I'm rich enough. I can do it. Go back to John 3, please. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you want to read it, I I have it written here. I'm not going to read it. This is from Numbers 21. Let me read the first sentence. And they journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spake against God. They grumbled. God's not good. God's not good. My life stinks. It should be better than this. I hate this way. I hate this manna. I hate God. I wish that I had a different God. And God was enraged, and he sent serpents in the sand, and thousands of people were bitten, and people were dropping dead. There were people, and you can imagine the panic. You can imagine when people panic, what happens? I was working at a theater once, and a lady was walking down the spiral staircase with her fur. She had her hands in her pocket, and she was being prissy prissy with her pretty clothes on. And she misstepped on that round staircase, slammed right into the wall with her head, had her still hand her hands, and went down with her dress over her, her head backwards down the stairs as people were going out the room. Well, no one knew what happened. They just knew that something happened. And a stampede occurred. And 3,000 people tried to get out of those three doors at the same time. It was terrifying. Okay, this idea of just chaos was terrifying. Okay, these people were running in circles. Grandma just fell over. People were running. What do we do? What do we do? The snakes everywhere. I can't get out of it. And they were stepping on them and over them. People were dying in their tracks, and they screamed to Moses, "Oh, we've sinned! Please pray." And God, in His mercy, answers immediately and said, "This is what you do." I want you to take a brass snake, which took some time to make, and I want you to impale it on a pole. 
I want you to kill that brass snake on that pole, impale it on the pole, and raise it above your head. And anybody that has been bitten, if you look at that stick, if you look at that snake, I'll heal them. Moses immediately makes a a snake. Now, the snake was a brass snake. It was a statue. It was as big as this, stuck on a pole, killed a dying snake, and anybody that looked at it was immediately healed. And that was what God said. Now, I want you just in your mind to imagine there's not 75 people there. There are millions of people there. If you were to fill this valley with millions of people, how far would the people go? How far would people be standing? If you were standing on the front steps of this church with a stick and put it above your head, how many people could see the stick? I just want you to know that when Paul says you look with faith upon Jesus' blood, and when Jesus is looking at this unbelieving man, he is saying, by the way, you're blind. Look to me, the ends of the earth, be saved. But no first, you can't see. You have to cast your blind eyes on me, and you look with all of your blindness to me and be saved. And that act will save you. The millions of people that couldn't even, didn't even know where the stick was, they were all shouting to each other, where is he? Where's the stick? What direction do I look? And they looked towards the stick with blind eyes and instantly were healed. God receives glory from your salvation by you trusting in his blood. It is enough. That is enough. It is enough for God. And it will change your life, Nicodemus. It will change your life. He said, by the way, at the end, in 15, can you put 15 up, please? John 3, 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever Whosoever, you do not have to be the third richest person in this country. You do not have to be smart. You do not have to be godly. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? You do not have to be the best person in your class. You have to look with your blind eyes to Jesus. And that is enough to save your soul. It is enough to change your life. It is enough to fill this church. It's enough to change this town. Let's pray. Hallelujah, great holy God. We thank you for your kindness to us, for your incredible, that you would reach down, 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 down to us, and that you would exalt, exalt us that you would lift us to a high place and build us into a spiritual house fit for yourself to live in. We're dumbfounded and ask that you would please forgive us of our sins, our unbelief, and let that unbelief go away because you are here. Let us preach that gospel to ourselves until we trust you 
And we thank you that you are indeed powerful to save, that you could save to the uttermost those who come to you in faith. And we reach out with the smallest faith ever recorded and trust you. Please save our souls. Please change our lives. Please make us yours. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.